thoughts are all against me I'm ready to go Burning it down They ain't noticed Till the temperature rose Bless the energy Then we erupt in a blaze Mama save us I swear the baby's lately crazy Hi, I'm James Anderson Foster And you're listening to Sorceress A weekly podcast of awesome Serialized urban fantasy fiction Written by amazing authors Performed for you by professional narrators And brought to you by SerialAudio.com It's totally binge-worthy Chapter 16 Israel ran like the wind. Trees and other foliage were a blur as he sprinted past them. If something got in his way, he either dodged around it like a professional running back, or he simply jumped over it. At one point, certain he'd left the pudgy officers in the dust, he spotted a rocky outcropping that rose twenty feet into the air and jumped for the top of it, eager to test his limits. He was surprised when he not only cleared the lip, but a good ten feet of real estate beyond it. The ground sloped upwards at that point, but he managed to stick the landing. He knelt there for a moment, listening, inhaling unknown scents, and generally basking in the way the world around him was filtering through his senses. It was odd not being out of breath or feeling any kind of fatigue from the run. The hunger, though, started to creep over him like goosebumps under his skin. He knew he was pushing it, but... If the word was out that he was a terrorist, then he absolutely wanted no part of any law enforcement encounter. Best to push it a little and make a clean getaway. He hoped Dan and Gerald came up with a good story to explain what happened to their car. Cops never let their own live anything down. Israel pointedly ignored the hunger and looked around. The great outdoors, he decided, was really overrated. He needed to get back to a city. He knew how to get by in a city. Bear grills could keep the outdoor survival crap. Still, Allison had been very clear about keeping away from populated areas. He didn't really see how he had a choice, though. He had no phone, no internet, no food except what was on the hoof, and no shelter. He wasn't sure how much of that last one he actually needed anymore, but there were other comforts he wouldn't mind having access to. Showers and ESPN came to mind. He started forward again at a steady walking pace. He wasn't sure how fast he could run now, but he was sure the police were far behind him regardless. The hungry feeling that tickled at him was persistent, but he was equally so in ignoring it. He topped the rise and looked through the trees. The ground inclined a little more, but then seemed to level off. He heard a strange sound from farther ahead, familiar, though he couldn't place it. It was a kind of hollow, static whirring, and as it grew a little louder, he recognized it as the sound of inflated rubber rolling over concrete. He saw the bicyclists blur past between the trees a hundred feet or so ahead. The riders were a man and woman, and her laughter followed them through the trees. Israel started forward again when he could no longer hear them. A couple of minutes walking, and he set his foot on a concrete path. White lines separated it into walking and biking lanes. It was well-maintained, and a sign a few feet to his right identified it as the Rockdale River Trail. Israel smiled. State-maintained concrete paths through the forest was the kind of wilderness he was accustomed to. 
He knew if he followed the path, it would eventually lead to a trailhead. In a state park, that meant a parking lot, which meant cars, which meant roads, and roads led to cities. Israel decided he was done with the great outdoors. The question was, which way to go? Either way would lead him out, he thought, but one could be hours while the other was minutes. He had no way of knowing if the cyclists were heading out for their ride or returning from one. Allison's warnings played through his memory again, and he turned the opposite direction from the cyclists. He walked for what felt like forever before the trail turned and started running parallel to a small country road. The trees were still thick, but Israel ignored the signs about staying on the path and cut through the foliage and found himself on worn asphalt once again. He knew it was a risk getting back on the road, especially if Dan and Gerald had called in the troops and they were searching for him, but staying on that trail would only lead to more trees. With a shrug, he turned left and started down the road. He didn't know if it was the same road he had been on when he jumped out of the police cruiser, but he figured it didn't matter. Hopefully, he would see or hear anyone looking for him before they spotted him. So long as he didn't get into another fight like the one from the night before, he figured he would be able to hide or get away without losing control. Had that just been last night? It seemed like days ago. Israel started replaying the last few days of his life in his mind, and it ran like one of those crappy movies on the sci-fi channel. He was lost in thought when he heard a car slowing behind him. He mentally cursed himself for letting his mind wander and turned slowly, ready to bolt for the trees if he even saw a hint of law enforcement. Instead, a battered yellow pickup truck rumbled to a stop next to him. It was a really old truck, the kind that was made of steel and didn't have a single electronic circuit under the hood. There was an elderly black man in the front seat. Next to him was a large German shepherd that looked at Israel with a steady assessing gaze. The dog let out a low growl when the old man finished lowering the window with the old-fashioned hand crank. Hush, Heinrich, the old man said. The dog grew quiet but didn't take his eyes off Israel. The old man was gray-haired and had a lined face around kind, moist eyes. Howdy, he said. Gotta say, you look like you've seen a rough patch. Need a ride someplace? Israel stepped up to the window. Heinrich growled again and earned himself another retort from his owner. When the dog was quiet again, Israel said, Yes, sir, I could. I got lost hiking the trails. Could you tell me where I am? You in from the city? Yes, sir. The old man nodded. Well, this here is Alexander's Lake Road. Don't know how you managed it, but you're pretty far piece from any of the other trailheads. I'd appreciate any ride you could give me, sir. I don't have any idea where my friend's car is. I'm actually visiting from out of state. I'd offer to pay you, but my wallet's in my friend's car. Uh-huh. Yeah, you don't sound like you're from the South. Tell you what, I'm heading into Panthersville for an appointment. Damn knees bother me. I tell you, son, getting old ain't for weaklings. Anyway, I could take you that far, and you can find a phone, call your friends. It's right on the way back to Atlanta, so they can stop and get you on their way back to the city. That'd be great, thanks. You'll need to ride in back, though. Heinrich here is a touch-over protective. Not a problem at all. The man nodded. All right, hop in. There's a tarp back there if the wind gets to you. My name's Eli Green. I'm Gary, Israel said, the name popping into his mind from nowhere. Gary Johnson.
Israel had never actually ridden in the back of a pickup truck before. He found the experience to be actually enjoyable for the first few minutes, but then remembered the people who were looking for him. They had the pull to label him a terrorist and issue a warrant for his arrest. Did they have access to satellites? Maybe, he figured. The thought struck him as a little paranoid, but he laid down and pulled the canvas tarp up over his head anyway. Better safe than dissected, he decided. The ride was bumpy, but not uncomfortable. Israel wasn't sure that would have been true a week ago, but his new body seemed impervious to discomfort. The tarp provided a welcomed shield from the sun's glare, but he closed his eyes anyway. The road noise mixed with the vibrations that radiated through the truck's steel frame into a cocktail of sensations that Israel was sure would have put him to sleep. Instead, he lay still and drew into himself, letting his mind wander without actually focusing. His brain jumped from image to image like he was channel surfing without really giving any one station a real chance. Before he knew it, the truck had stopped and he heard someone banging on the side of the vehicle. He threw back the tarp and was immediately assaulted by a cacophony of all the scents and sounds that came with a busy urban intersection. Traffic noise, tinny music coming from Chevron station speakers, gasoline and exhaust fumes, sun-baked asphalt. It all smelled like home. They were stopped at a gas station that shared a parking lot with an athletic shoes outlet. Israel dropped out of the bed of the truck and went around to the driver's window to thank his benefactor. When he got there, Eli shoved a small wad of folded bills toward him. Here, take this, the old man said. Mr. Green, you don't have to hush up, the old man said. I was a young man once too and needed help from a stranger and he gave it without being asked. Now it's my turn. Now, I don't know what your trouble is and frankly don't want to. I'm too old and too tired for any kind of trouble, but you're a well-mannered fella and I get a good feeling from you, so you let an old man pay his debt to the good Lord and take this money. It ain't much, just a hundred, but it'll see you into the city. Israel hesitated, then took the money. Thank you, sir. I'll look you up and pay you back. Eli waved the promise off. Son, I'm making a practice to never lend money. I give it. If it makes his way back to me, that's fine. If it doesn't, also fine. Now, look yonder. He pointed to the side of the Chevron station. See that sign says, Marta? That's the bus station. If you can't reach your friends, you take the 186 line and it'll drop you downtown near the Capitol. You should be able to get a cab to anywhere you need to go from there or another bus. Your choice. Good luck to you, Gary, or whatever your real name is. Before Israel could reply, the truck was pulling back into the busy intersection. Israel watched it go and then turned toward the gas station. He went inside and asked the attendant how often the bus ran. As it turned out, he had about 15 minutes to kill. He spent a little of the money Eli had given him on a thin red sports hoodie with a Georgia Bulldogs logo on it, a pair of black plastic Wayfarer sunglasses, and a large bag of beef jerky. That took nearly half the money he had, but he was glad for it. Israel went around to the side of the building and leaned against the wall by the bus stop. The glasses did a good job of keeping the glare out of his eyes. He wore the hood up and hoped the combination of that and the glasses would keep his face hidden. He didn't know if Atlanta used closed-circuit television for law enforcement like some cities, but he figured if they did, then the people who'd branded him a terrorist would certainly have access to it. 
As he tore open the plastic bag and started eating the jerky, he decided that he'd like to have a conversation with the person who made that decision. He finished the bag of jerky and dropped the bag into a trash can. The hunger that had been prickling under his skin eased, but he could still feel it there like a waiting invader. He didn't have long to ignore it before the bus arrived, rolling in with a rumble and a cloud of diesel fumes. Israel boarded alone and dropped the $2 fare into the box by the driver. He found a seat near the side exit and settled in. The 186 rolled into the intersection and before long was lumbering down Decatur Street toward downtown. Israel sat with his head bowed and hidden. He hoped it looked like he was napping. Actually, he was busy planning his next move. He couldn't just ride the bus indefinitely, so he decided to get off at the first stop that looked like it would provide him with lots of buildings and maybe a rougher neighborhood to get lost in. When they finally crossed over Interstate 85 and stopped at Pratt Street to take on passengers, he stepped off and looked around. The interstate traffic roared by beneath the overpass bridge. The bus stop was at the top of the interstate exit near Grady Memorial Hospital. Parking structures dominated both sides of Decatur Street, and tall buildings extended down the block as far as he could see. He glanced around quickly, spotted a camera on a pole at the intersection, then put his head down again. So. Atlanta did have cameras. Super. Israel started walking toward the deeper city. He did his best to walk normally, even though he felt like running again. Cars rolled by on Decatur Street, but none slowed or seemed to notice him in any way. The magic of urban invisibility, he thought, walking totally alone in a crowd of millions. In truth, though, he wished there were more people on the street, Atlanta was more spread out than Chicago, so the sidewalks didn't stay as crowded. He came up on the intersection of Jesse Hill Jr. Drive and turned left. The crowd thinned even more, so he picked up his pace a little. He had no real idea where he was going, but the way ahead looked like it was still part of the medical complex. Israel considered hiding out in the maze of hospital facilities, but dismissed the idea almost immediately. Urban medical centers usually had a lot of security, and that was something he didn't want. Jesse Hill ended at an intersection about a block ahead. To the left was another bridge over the interstate, while to the right was more of the medical complex. He was coming to the intersection when he heard the squeal of tires behind him. He looked over his shoulder and saw a dark SUV stop suddenly at the exit to one of the parking structures. Traffic was blocking the vehicle's path. It was edging its way into traffic when strobe lights suddenly flashed from the dashboard. Israel started running. He heard a burst of siren and the screech of tires behind him. Fast as he could, Israel came to the intersection and veered left. The bridge over the interstate was in front of him, and he sped across it. The chain-link safety fence was a gray blur as he ran past it. He was almost to the other side when he saw another vehicle turn and skid onto the road ahead, strobes flashing from its dash as well. Israel kept running, but angled to the left again. There was a small copse of trees that bordered a business complex of some kind. White buildings surrounded an old matching industrial brick smokestack. Someone had built a digital billboard onto the side of the massive cylinder, and the word Cory blinked in golden script. He entered the trees and easily vaulted the fence that they hid. He landed in an empty parking lot. He wasn't sure what day it was, but this place was closed for business by the looks of it, and a small part of him was grateful for that. The last thing he needed was to show up in a YouTube video. 
He started running for the far side of the lot, but stopped short when the SUV that had shown up in his path screeched into view and cut him off. Israel turned and started to backtrack, but was cut off by the first SUV. He stood, panic rising in his chest as three men piled out of each vehicle. They pointed blocky tasers at him and started moving forward slowly. Israel Trent, federal agents, lie face down with your hands behind your head. Do it now, one of them shouted. Israel was looking for the best direction to run when he saw a large man with a tattoo covering one side of his face jump from the roof of the three-story office building and land with a crash on the first SUV. The vehicle's roof caved in and safety glass splintered into a crystal web with the impact. Seemingly unfazed, the tattooed man jumped again and landed easily behind the surprised agents. The men turned toward the sound as the newcomer closed in on them. Two of the agents were standing close enough together that the newcomer brought both his hands around in a wide arc as though clapping and shoved the agents' heads together. It struck Israel like something out of a cartoon, except for the way the agents' heads collapsed beneath the blow. Blood burst between the bigger man's spread fingers. The third agent fired his taser into the tattooed man's chest and squeezed hard on the trigger. Israel could see the wires connecting the man to the weapon, could hear the buzz of electrical discharge, could smell flesh starting to roast at the contact points. The tattooed man just laughed and yanked the wires free. Taking one large step, he punched the agent hard and fast in the center of his chest. Bones popped loudly as the man's sternum shattered under the blow, and he was lifted off his feet to land in a heap five feet from his killer. Israel stared in wide horror at the tattooed man. He heard six rapid pops from behind him. He spun and saw another man by the second SUV, smaller and much more handsome than the other, with a smoking pistol in each hand. The last of that vehicle's agents was dropping to the ground, each shot twice in the head. The scent of cordite and blood mixed in the air. Israel looked around in bewilderment. He'd just seen six men die in as many seconds. Hi, Israel, the gunman said. You won't remember us, but we met back in Chicago a few weeks ago. I'm Jordan Screed. This is my brother Carmine. We need to talk. Chapter 17 The first thing she heard as she came awake was a young girl laughing. Aaron lay still, listening to the sound blend in with the creak of floorboards, the clatter of dishes, and a television playing but most likely ignored in the background. There was a soft pillow under her head and a heavy blanket covering her. She was still dressed, but someone had taken off her shoes. A scent filled the air, a wonderful aroma that made her mouth water and her stomach gently grumble. Someone was making bacon and coffee. She started to sit up, but winced and settled back down as dull pains hit her from a variety of angles. After a few long minutes, wakefulness took hold and memories came back to her. She pushed past the aches in her ribs and face and sat up. She was on a worn leather couch in a small room. A window in one wall showed a bright desert landscape outside. There was a desk against one wall with a small computer and printer on it. On the wall above the desk, there was a collection of framed photographs, dozens of them, that all depicted a man in various settings with different people, some of them famous, Aaron thought, but she couldn't put names to the faces. That's my I love me wall, 
a heavy voice said. Aaron turned and saw a man standing in the doorway. He was tall and heavy-set with late middle age. His hair was graying but still showed signs of the rich brown it had been when he was younger, the way it was in the pictures. A thick and graying Van Dyke beard highlighted his mediocre lips. His sharp, assessing eyes never left Aaron's face. Just a lot of photos from my life. Places I've been, friends and family, that kind of thing. I'm Charlie. He took a step forward and extended his hand. Aaron took it and gave it a quick shake. I'm Aaron, she said. Where am I? My house, he said. We're just outside Victorville. Melina and the other girls said you slept all the way here. We couldn't wake you when you arrived last night, so we just set you up on the couch. It's the quietest room in the house. Charlie stepped out of the room and gestured as he spoke. Bathroom's right over there, kitchen's this way. I made a big breakfast, just follow the smell. How do you like your coffee? Oh, uh, cream and sugar if you've got it, Aaron said. Oh yeah, I've got it. Make yourself at home and join us at your leisure, he said. Aaron found her shoes by the couch and slipped them back on. She followed Charlie's directions and turned toward the bathroom. The house was no silver sky, but it was large and comfortable. Art, real paintings, Aaron noticed, hung on the walls and created a kind of gallery in the hallway. She was looking at a landscape filled with a blue harbor and white buildings when Milena came out of a doorway farther down. The younger woman was freshly showered and had changed clothes. She was quite lovely and smiled when she saw Aaron. Mi angel, she said with a crisp accent. You're awake. How do you feel? Aaron shrugged. Like I got my ass kicked. But I'm good. Where are we exactly? Did you meet Charlie? Aaron nodded. He is a kind of uncle to one of the girls. Her father is his best friend or something like that. Charlie made a lot of money back when the internet was starting up. It's his place, and he's letting us stay here for now. We've called everyone we can for the girls. Some of them have already been picked up by their families. He's a good man. You can trust him. Aaron thought about that. Does he always take in truckloads of victimized women? Milena shook her head. No, but he is involved with helping people get their lives together after major setbacks, grief counseling, that sort of thing. He often has groups that stay here for days at a time as a kind of getaway, so he's set up for guests. He doesn't much care for the police. He blames them for something, I think, so he's content to let us stay without involving them. Aaron nodded. Okay, where's the bathroom? Milena showed her the way and said, Charles has some extra clothes for when people stay here. Want me to try and find something for you? Aaron looked down at the bloodied and filthy remains of her stolen outfit. Yeah, that would probably be a good thing. Milena smiled again and said, Get a shower, mi angel, and I'll lay the clothes on the sink for you. The younger woman turned and headed for the door she had come out of. Aaron stopped her. Milena, she said, I told you before, I'm not an angel. Milena studied her quietly and then said, We are all more than one thing. Perhaps you are and just haven't realized it yet. She was out of sight before Aaron could reply. The hot shower was nothing less than glorious. It stung her battered face, but the combination of heat and steam seemed to leach the ache from her ribs and jaw. As she'd expected, she was sporting a bruise the size of a softball on her side. Her face, well, 
He figured she wasn't ever trying to lure in Johns again, so who cared if she looked like the wrong end of a beating? When she stepped out of the shower, she found a large pile of clothing covering the sink and closed toilet. Milena had come and gone silently and had brought a variety of things for Aaron to choose from since she hadn't known her sizes. Aaron toweled off, brushed back her wet hair, and went through the clothing. By the time she was done, she had settled on a pair of jeans, a pair of scratched Doc Martens with thick soles, a black T-shirt with a Guns N' Roses design on the front, and a well-worn light brown leather jacket. Milena had also left a small paper bag with the clothing. In it were Tico's, no, they were hers now, Aaron told herself, pistol and spare clips. Suitably attired and with the pistol zipped into a jacket pocket, Aaron went into the hall and followed her nose to the kitchen. When she walked in, she was greeted by a gaggle of fresh-faced and rested young women who all smiled at her, hugged her, and thanked her for what she'd done the night before. Aaron looked around for the little girl who'd been sitting in her lap, but found out that she had already been picked up by her family. She was glad for that, but wished she could have said goodbye. Charlie had already set her a place at the table with a plate piled high with eggs, bacon, toast, and fresh fruit. Aaron dove into the food. With all that had happened, she hadn't realized how hungry she was. Hunger sated, she sat content, nibbling at the last bit of her toast while Charlie refilled her coffee cup. He brought it over, and he and Milena joined her at the table. He set the cup in front of her, and she took a moment to breathe in the smoky aroma. They talked for a long time. Aaron deftly avoided questions about her past, but did so as politely as she could manage. She asked Charlie about some of the photos she'd seen, and he was happy to regale her with stories of his traveled youth. Finally, after way too much coffee, they came back around to the present. So, Charlie said, we've got people coming for the others, but what about you? Is there someone you can call? Do you need a ride? Aaron looked out one of the kitchen windows and picked a point in the desert. She focused and immediately felt it there, ready to pull toward. She smiled and released it from her mind. No, she said, I can make my own arrangements. Charlie nodded. Okay. He sipped his coffee and studied her in silence. Aaron tried to ignore it. She didn't want to be rude to the guy who'd just opened his house and pantry to her. Milena told me what you did back in Prim how you broke up that party with nothing but some lights. Pretty smart. So, what, you some kind of cop? Aaron laughed. It was a rich, hearty thing that bubbled up from her gut and carried three days' worth of terror and tension with it. She did it long enough that Milena and Charlie shared a confused look. No, no, Aaron said, gaining control of herself and wiping tiny tears from her eyes. I am so not a cop. I just heard about it. I couldn't let it happen. You are a hero, Milena said. No, she said, I'm not. I just, look, it was a one-time thing. I was there, I did what I did, and that's that. Now, I just plan on traveling for a while. I just want to keep moving. Charlie nodded. A walkabout, that's what they call it in Australia. Can't fault you for that. I had to do something similar once. Aaron nodded. Thanks for all this, she said. She raised the coffee cup to her lips, glancing up as she did. The television was in the next room, though no one was really watching it. 
On it, there was a blonde talking head rattling off something she couldn't make out. To her left was a close-up picture of Israel Trent. The words, terrorism in Atlanta, were splashed across the bottom of the image. So where do you think you're headed? Charlie asked. Aaron got up without answering and walked over to the television. As she drew closer, she could understand the newscaster's words. It took a couple of minutes of listening, but she got the gist of it. Israel was on the run and being hunted for conspiring to commit some kind of terrorist plot. Bullshit, she said. Aaron? Me angel? Malena said. Aaron looked back at her and pointed at the television screen. That is bullshit. What? Charlie said. That Atlanta thing? The front door was a few steps from the television and Aaron used it, stomping out of the house and slamming the heavy screen door behind her. She paced in the yard like a caged animal, furious thoughts clawing at her reason. She was suddenly so angry, but she couldn't pinpoint why. Israel was in trouble, that much was obvious, but why was that such a big deal to her? Stupid question, she knew. He was the first guy in her life to try to look out for her and want nothing in return. He was the first guy who had treated her with decency and not like a sex toy or a punching bag. Hell, they barely knew each other, but he'd gotten her awake and out of that Oceanside hellhole when it would have been just as easy and probably smarter to keep walking. Maybe that was it, though. He couldn't have kept walking, couldn't have left her on her own. She'd needed help, and he'd given it with no thought of reward. That's just who he was. Even now, that sort of confused her. When she heard the front porch's door open and Milena call her name, though, she realized maybe it wasn't so confusing after all. Aaron stopped pacing and faced the younger woman. I have to go, she said. Why? Milena asked, joining her in the yard. The man on the television. He's my friend. The things they're saying about him are lies, and I think he needs my help. How will you get there? Will you just... She held up her hands and extended her fingers in a poofing motion. I don't know. I'm not sure I can. Or could she? Originally, she'd had no intention of returning to Atlanta, so she hadn't given much thought to pulling that far. She wasn't sure it was even possible, but then realized that it had to be. After all, isn't that what she'd done the first time? That first time was unintentional, unfocused, and yet it had brought her not only back to Nevada, but near to one of the places that held a terrible memory for her. Could it be that she had done it instinctively? That roadhouse had been a place where she'd resigned herself to feeling trapped and used. It was an emotional scar she still felt, and when her power had first kicked in, those two guards had been holding her. She'd felt trapped. Aaron glanced at the front porch and then walked over to the side of the house, away from most of the windows. Milena followed her. Go inside, Aaron said. I want to try something. I want to see. Aaron looked at her. Go inside, Milena. The younger woman hesitated and then turned to go. I will remember you always, mi angel. Aaron hardly heard. She was focusing on her memories. She dredged up what she could recall of Silver Sky. The sense, the lighting, the feel of the place. Mostly, she tried to remember that last night there. The guard's hands on her arms, stone right up in her face, Warburton trying to control everyone, struggling to get away, Israel looking sick feeling the emotional stew of anger, fear, and helplessness boil through her. She bundled all of this into a tight bubble of concentration in her mind and then let it explode outward, far and wide, farther than she'd ever tried to reach before. 
Then, there, in the far fringes of her awareness, she felt a small connection, like a fingertip hold in the dark. Aaron mentally latched onto it, took a deep breath, and pulled. When she materialized in Warburton's office, she felt a wave of drunken dizziness wash over her. Aaron stumbled a little at the sensation, but stayed on her feet. She gasped as though she'd been holding her breath and indeed felt as though she had just sprinted a mile. When she saw Warburton looking at her from behind her desk, though, she felt her strength rapidly return on a wave of anger. You, she said, pointing at Warburton. What did you do to Israel, you bitch? Aaron. Warburton said, her eyes wide. Where did you come from? Your face. Are you all... Aaron picked a spot right next to Warburton's wheelchair and pulled. He was very satisfied with the short yelp of surprise she got from Warburton when she appeared. She leaned in close and said, Where is Israel? Oh, my God, Warburton gasped. You... you teleported. How... answer me. Warburton's surprised demeanor disappeared, and the determined and controlled expression that was her norm slid back into place. We don't know. We're looking for him. Now, please, back away. You're making me uncomfortable. Aaron stood up, but didn't step back. What is this terrorist bullshit? That's not sentry, Warburton said quickly. I would never do something like that to him. He's been nothing but cooperative. That's the DGRI those government guys? Why the hell are they after him? Did this happen to him too? Warburton shook her head. Not exactly. A lot has happened in the last day or so, though. Please, just sit down and give me a moment to explain. If I even so much as hear a guard coming, I'm gone, understand? Warburton nodded. Aaron picked a spot next to one of the couches and pulled. Warburton jumped a little in her seat when it happened, but didn't cry out this time. She stared at Aaron in wonder and said, That is without a doubt the most amazing thing I have ever seen, and, Miss Sims, I have seen more than my share. Aaron settled onto the couch. She had chosen one with a clear view of the entire room, including the window that led into the yard. Israel, she said, start talking. Warburton did just that. She told her everything that had happened since Aaron had disappeared from the office, with the exception of her conversation with the Arcane. Warburton told her about paragons and how rare and unique they were. She told Aaron about the necrophage bloodline and what Israel had become and what the DGRI wanted to do with him. When she was finished, she sat quietly and waited for Aaron to process it all. The younger woman did, if silently and slowly. She'd risen and was next to the window, looking out over the grounds. She seemed to be struggling with all the information she had just been given. Aaron, where did you go? Warburton asked, unable to hold her patience any longer. Aaron looked over at her. Home. I had some things to do. She faced the window again and said, So, what do we do now? We need to find him. We? Warburton said. Yeah. Aaron said, for the moment, until Israel's safe, I owe him and, I guess, you for getting me out of Oceanside. After that, though, I'm gone again. I'm not interested in all of this bullshit. Get this straight, too. If he asks me to get him out of here, far away from here, I'm going to do it. Warburton nodded her assent. Honestly, she said, 
I'd much prefer that over the DGRI catching up to him. Why haven't they? Aaron asked. I mean, I've seen how cops act when they get organized and start looking for someone. If he was heading for that state park, that wouldn't be too hard a place for them to lock down. Is he's not Rambo, they'd catch him. I agree. Israel's definitely more suited to an urban environment. I think the DGRI's failure lies in the fact that they're hunting him as they would any other necrophage. They think he's on the hunt and are focusing on the population centers, campgrounds and the like. The only way that will work is if he's not in control of himself. Since they haven't found him, we have to assume he is in control and sticking to out-of-the-way spots. It's just a matter of time, though. Aaron nodded, but the tight lines of her jaw betrayed her displeasure. It would help, Warburton said, if I could pull some of my sentry resources off the search for you and put them toward looking for Israel. To do that, I need to let Stone know that you're here. Is that acceptable? Aaron considered it, then said, Fine, but tell that short shit to keep looking for Israel and to leave us alone. I'm not going anywhere unless you give me a reason. Warburton agreed and made a call. Stone, she said, you can shut down the runaway search. It's been resolved. I'll give you the details later. Put everything into the other search. She listened for a minute and then ended the call without saying goodbye. As of now, every available resource I have is looking for Israel. Aaron nodded. Run away? she asked. Warburton smiled a little. Stone has a fondness for radio call signs. That's the one he gave you when you vanished. Aaron grunted and turned her attention to the window again and the spot she was holding in her mind in case she needed to make a fast exit. They waited like that for what seemed like hours, Warburton working at her desk and Aaron wandering the office, flipping through books without really reading them, brushing off Warburton's attempts at conversation and generally being bored. Eventually, Warburton offered to have some lunch brought in and Aaron accepted, grateful for the change of pace. A young woman in black slacks and a crisp white shirt came in with a cart containing coffee in a silver pot, iced tea in a crystal decanter, and a tray of assorted sandwiches cut into neat crustless triangles. Fresh fruit finished off the meal. Warburton nodded her approval, then thanked and dismissed the server. After she rolled over and joined Aaron by the couches, she invited the younger woman to partake. Warburton had finished one of her sandwiches when her phone rang. She answered it. Yes, Mr. Stone? She listened for a moment, then said, You're sure? This is confirmed. Another pause. All right. Bring the chopper back and I'll meet you at the pad with Runaway. Again, she listened. Yes, she's with me. Quickly, Stone, get back here. She hung up and said, The DGRI have located Israel near the capital. They don't have him in custody, but it won't be long. I'm assuming you can't just pop to where he is. You need line of sight. How the hell did you know that? Aaron snapped. Please, Aaron. You've been staring out that window for two hours like it was the light at the end of the tunnel. It wasn't a huge leap. Okay, Aaron said. Yeah, I need to see where I'm going. Warburton smiled. Have you ever ridden in a helicopter? Thanks for listening this week. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sorceress as much as we enjoy bringing it to you. 
Remember to come back next week or subscribe at SerialAudio.com so you never miss a new episode. You can learn more about this podcast and other serialized fiction shows by visiting our website at SerialAudio.com. That's all one word, SerialAudio.com, where you can subscribe to this and our other shows via RSS, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast players. While you're at it, if you're enjoying this podcast, we'd love it if you'd share it with your friends. Even better, if you have a few spare seconds, leave a review on iTunes. To help support this show, sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash serial audio. You'll get early access to episodes ad-free and special bonuses like behind-the-scenes author and narrator interviews. Thank you again from all of us at serialaudio.com. It's totally binge-worthy. Cause we warriors. Cause we warriors. Let's go. Let's up. One time. Go get it. It's yours. Let's